0: Good morning if you didn 't hear me earlier, thank you. Uh, if you could just turn with me quickly to Romans chapter five, uh, this is not the text which i 'm going to be preaching on this morning, but uh, there's something i'd like to read you from Romans chapter five and we'll just read from verse six uh, what i 'm going to be sharing with you this morning is is um, not easy to hear but As we preach today about the sinfulness of man, I want you to remember that this doctrine is actually the most encouraging doctrine to the Christian, and the reasons for that we find in Romans chapter 5, let's just read from verse 6, Paul says, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The first thing that the doctrine of man, which we're going to be discussing this morning, does for the Christian is it shows us how incredibly loving and gracious and glorious our God is. The doctrine of the sinfulness of man glorifies God second thing it does. Next verse, he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The second thing that, that the preaching of sin does in the heart of a Christian, it makes us realize how far we've, we've come. It makes us realize from what we were saved that this is not a small thing that God has done for the Christian. This is an an enormous change that has passed upon your soul. And what it does, it makes you realize that if if God were willing to save you while you were in such a depraved state, how much more will He hold you steady and save you and keep you from wrath? So one of the other things that the preaching of sin does, it makes the Christian realize you cannot lose your salvation. This is like, tri- it's like tripping onto the moon. It's Impossible. That's how big the change is that's, ha- that's happened to you. And if God were willing to do that for you, don't you think he'll keep you? The grace of God will take you home, my friends. And the third thing it'll do is it'll, it'll, it'll inspire us to a purer life. When we realize what we've become, what we were and what we've become in Christ, it'll inspire us to purity of life. Okay, so please turn with me to John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8, and we will read from verse uh, 21 together. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and verse 21, then Jesus said to them again, Uh, The Pharisees had come to hear Jesus again. They were regular members of the crowds that came to listen to Jesus speak, and here they were again listening to Jesus, just like you have come to church again this morning. And yet the Pharisees had not come to learn. They hadn't come to to grow. They, They hadn't come to be challenged. They didn't come with a humble heart. They came to judge. They came to to trap Jesus in his words. Uh, one of the greatest preachers of all time is a man by the name of uh, John Chrysostom. Uh, Chrysostom lived in the early fourth, uh, sorry, early fifth century. Uh, in the year 398, he became the bishop of Constantinople, and he became known all over the world as Golden Mouth because of his power as a preacher. They say he's the greatest preacher in the first centuries of the church. And John Chrysostom made this comment. He often would preach to crowds of thousands of people, and Chrysostom would preach for over two hours. And his crowds didn't get to sit. They had to stand and listen to him. And at the end of his sermons, they were still baying for more. It's said that during his his, uh, sermons, uh, the crowd would erupt throughout the sermons in, in, in applause. And one day he rebuked the crowd while he was preaching. He said, uh, he said I know that the, the crowds listened quietly to our Lord Jesus as he preached, and I encourage you to do the same. And at that, the crowd burst into applause. <laughs> so Chrysostom said this, most people usually listen to a preacher for pleasure, not profit, like adjudicators of a play or a concert. Chrysostom said most people come to church to be entertained, like they're watching an idols competition, like they've come to enjoy MasterChef. They don't really want to learn how to cook better, they just enjoy watching the show. One of the greatest preachers of our own generation, a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, previous generation, he was the minister at Westminster Chapel and he's known as the last of the great preachers, which I trust is not true. We trust that the Lord will thrust out men of greater anointing and power in preaching than Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Chrysostom because that's what our world needs. The answer to this world's problems is not a better government or a better healthcare system or any of these things. The answer to this world's problem is the preaching of the gospel. He said this, the business of preaching is not to entertain, but to lead people to salvation, to teach them how to find God. And so my job this morning is not to entertain you. My job is to preach to you the way of salvation and to teach you how to find God. And that way of salvation, we must remember, is through a narrow gate, and it is along a difficult way. The good news of the gospel is only good news because it starts with such terribly bad news. Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. There are fundamental uh, existentialist questions which are on the heart of every human being. Existentialist means that they relate to our existence. Fundamental questions like, where did we come from? Where are we going when we die? Questions of that nature. And God placed those questions in the heart of man so that man would seek him. In Acts chapter 17, we read of Paul's preaching to the extreme academics of his day, the Greeks in Athens. And he made the following statement to these men He said, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord. So God has chosen where to put you in history, and He has chosen where you will live geographically. He chose where you would be born. Why did He do these things? He has orchestrated the circumstances of your life so that you will seek Him, in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. In Him we move and breathe and have our being. God wants you to find Him. That's why God has appointed certain men to be preachers. Because God wants men and women to find Him. And the, and the mechanism, the means by which men and women find God is through the preaching of the gospel. That's the way God has chosen for it to be. God wants us to find him because he loves us and he wants to do us good because God is good. And he sent his son into the world to make himself known to us. That we were not seeking God, but he came to seek us. And Jesus came and he revealed the father to us. And he came to bring back that which was lost, bring it back to God. And Jesus came, and in the three years of his ministry, more important than the miracles that he did, more important than that were the things that he taught. And Jesus answered many of these great existentialist questions of life. Jesus said, I'm going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. And here Jesus addresses the first of the great questions of life, the question of who am I? The question of who are we as people? What is our standing in the world? What is our status? If there is a God, where do we stand before Him? Who am I? Do I have value? One of the greatest controversies in the history of the church uh, took place in the early fifth century, and it it surrounded the teachings of a man named Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius was a British monk. He was an ascetic, which means he withdrew from the world. He believed that the Christian was called to a pure, separate life, a holy life, and he came to Rome and he began gathering disciples, and he had some very strange teachings. He later moved to Palestine, continued teaching there. What set Pelagius off was one day he was reading the autobiography of uh, Augustine. Augustine's autobiography is called The Confessions. He was reading The Confessions, and he read the statement of Augustine's, which has become a famous statement. Augustine said, Lord, give what you command and command what you will. And when Pelagius read that apparently he flew off into a fit of rage because he understood correctly that Augustine was saying that if God is if if man is ever to obey the moral commandments of God the righteous commandments of God that God has to supernaturally empower a man to do it. That men and women are morally incapable. We do not have the ability to obey God. God has to come in His grace and sovereignty and empower us to obey because we are slaves of sin. Give what you command, give the ability to do what you command and command what you will. Pelagius read that, flew into a fit of rage. Uh, Pelagius wrote a letter to a nun while he was in uh, Palestine. Somehow this this letter got leaked. It it came into the hands of Bishop John, the Bishop of Jerusalem. And uh, Bishop John knew this was uh, heretical teaching, the things that he was teaching. The thing got escalated and eventually uh, Pelagius' case gets brought before the chief bishop in the world at the time. There was a collegiate of bishops and the, the kind of head of that collegiate, the figurehead, was the Bishop of Rome. Bishop of Rome at the time was a man by the name of Innocent. He studied the teachings of Pelagius, and he was about to to condemn those teachings officially on behalf of the church, and uh, he died. Uh, Innocent was then succeeded by a man called Zosimus. Zosimus was a, a far more liberal man, even though he was Bishop of Rome at the time, and he really didn't have a problem with what Pelagius was teaching, but... The North African bishops, not to be outdone, the the church in North Africa in the early centuries was as strong as the European and uh, Asian church. There were very significant churches in Carthage and in Alexandria and in Hippo, where Augustine came from. The North African bishops had a a synod. They deliberated and unanimously they condemned the teachings of Pelagius. Zosimus found himself under increasing pressure, but he dragged his feet. He eventually did condemn Pelagius' teachings, but by then the ball was rolling, and 18 Italian bishops refused to accept this decree condemning Pelagius. One of the 18 bishops who essentially sided with Pelagius was a man named Julian. And it is against Julian that Augustine wrote his most famous work, During the Pelagian controversy, that work was called *Against Julian*. It's a little bit of the history for you. So, what did Pelagius teach? What did he teach? Pelagius taught that Adam was created mortal; that Adam would have died even if he had not have sinned. He simply died because he was a creature like all of us. Now, what is the implication of that? The implication is that death did not come into the world because of sin. You can see how problematic that is for the gospel. Not only that, but uh, Pelagius taught that Adam's sin only injured himself. That God was angry with Adam because of his sin, but that sin did not pass down the generations. And we know that uh, there is a doctrine in Christian uh, theology called the doctrine of original sin, a biblical doctrine, that when Adam fell, the whole of the human race fell with him, that our very DNA was corrupted when Adam sinned, and every single member of the human race is born sinful. Pelagius denied that. He said that people are born inherently neutral, that we're born a blank slate. And consequently, he taught that some people prior to Christ's coming actually had lived sinless lives. He said that both the law and the gospel can lead us to the kingdom. So you can either obey the law perfectly and earn your way into heaven through good works, and you have the choice to do that if you want to, or if you have sin, there is a remedy in the gospel. And so basically what Pelagius taught was that when babies are born into the world, they are born with, and here's the phrase, complete moral ability. Augustine, on the other hand, taught the complete opposite. Augustine's view of man's relationship to sin was that man was originally created immortal, that Adam and Eve were immortal. They would never have died if they had not sinned. But when they sinned, the judgment upon their sin. One of the aspects of God's judgment of sin was death. Not only that, but uh, he taught the doctrine of original sin, that Adam passed that down. So to Augustine, uh, a sin is like a hereditary disease. The moment you come out of your mother's womb, you are already carrying that disease. That man is utterly helpless and powerless as a slave of sin, and that we of ourselves can do nothing spiritually good because we are sold under sin. Now, up until this point in church history, the church had not had to deal with this doctrine. It's interesting, as you study church history, you realize many of the doctrines that we understand, like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, these doctrines were fashioned through heresies, that no one really gave any thought to these things until someone began to teach something that, was, that sounded wrong and then the church got together, they had these synods and they solved the problem. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity was formed at a council called Nicaea. Many of you know the Nicene Creed, which was a, an affirmation of the Trinity. But up, up until this point, they hadn't had to deal with the doctrine of man. And this whole Pelagian controversy plunged the church into a season in its history where it had to wrestle with this very existentialist question that we have before us this morning. Who are we? And of course, in John chapter 8, Jesus addresses this very question. I am going away, Jesus said, and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. The most important thing for you and I to realize about who we are, about what our state is in the world, is that we are born in sin. And of course, that's not the answer that, that we want to the question, who am I? We don't want to think of ourselves in that light. And notice that Jesus didn't say that, that uh, we will die in our sins, plural. He used the singular You will die in your sin. It is a state of being. We are inherently sinful. We come out of our mother's womb sinful by nature. We are evil. We are evil. We are rebellious. What does it mean to say that we are evil? It doesn't mean to say that we are as bad as we possibly could be. Man is not as bad as he possibly could be. Why? Because God in His grace has put certain things into the world, certain structures that keep man in check. Because if he hadn't have done that, this earth would have been finished years ago. You just look at what happened to the world before the days of Noah. That is God's lesson book to us about what we will do to the earth. The earth was filled with bloodshed, the Bible says and God could no longer bear it. That's why God has put governments in place. That's why he has separated nations because one nation keeps another nation accountable. Too much power in the hands of one nation would lead to the destruction of the human race. So God separated the nations at Babylon. God has put the family in in place, in society. If you grow up in a good family with a good father and a good mother and you're disciplined and you're taught manners, you will be able to control your behavior more than someone who's not brought up in a good family. But the idea of family was God's idea. God has kept mankind in check, but never let that deceive you into thinking that there is any good in mankind. There is not. We are inherently evil and sinful. We are rebellious against God. We will not serve God. We only want to be served. That is our nature. And the greatest effect of sin, of course, is that we die. We die physically, we die spiritually. And death entered through Adam. So that is our state. We are sinful and we die in our sin. We die of it. So what does that mean? So what if we die in our sin? Jesus goes on to say, you will die in your sin, and where I go, you cannot come. Where I go, you cannot come. Where did Jesus go? The Bible says Jesus died on that cross. He was in the grave. On the third day, he came alive again because he did not have sin in himself. He was pure. Death couldn't hold him. He came alive for 40 days. He showed himself to his disciples. And the Bible says he met with them on a high mountain. And the accounts of the eyewitnesses are that his body began to lift off the ground. And he ascended into the clouds and into heaven. And he seated himself at the right hand of God the Father. So where was Jesus going? He was going to heaven. And Jesus pointedly says that we cannot go to heaven. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, I'm going to assume that there's not one person in this room here this morning that does not want to go to heaven. That every one of us has the hope that when we die in this world, we will open our eyes and be in that better place. And so the words of Jesus that we cannot go to heaven. These words should trouble us. So the Jews said, verse 22, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And Jesus said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus said that he could go to heaven because he was from heaven. That's where he came from. And he said not only only was he from heaven, he said he was of heaven. Everything in his being was heavenly. And that's not like us. We are not from heaven and we are not of heaven. And so we cannot go to heaven. Uh, Jesus said, we are from beneath. We're from beneath. From the moment of our birth, everything that informs us is from this fallen, even, evil world. That is where we are from. That is our genesis. We are totally depraved. Our our minds are depraved. Our minds, our thoughts, the, the, the things that we think, our fantasies. The pride of our hearts, our our judgment of others, our hatred, our lust for revenge. Our thoughts are evil. Our wills are evil. Our will is depraved. It's broken through sin. We we know what is right. We have a conscience, and yet we, we, we refuse to do what we know to be right. We we know that it's it's wrong to ignore the poor to have a hardened, calloused heart towards those who have less than us, and yet we wander through shopping centers, buying things that we don't need, while people starve and freeze in this cold weather. Why don't we do what we know we should do? Our will is depraved. Our emotions are depraved. We delight in things which are not godly. We go to the movies and we watch Movies that do not glorify God. They blaspheme His name, and we ignore it. There are sex scenes and love scenes. Even a male and female actress kissing each other does not glorify God. That man and that woman are not married. By biblical standards, they are committing adultery, and we delight in it. We watch movies that that glorify violence and revenge, and when the goody gets the baddie at the end of the movie, and doesn't forgive. We delight in it. It's a victory. What is wrong with us? Our emotions are totally depraved. And our desires are depraved. We don't serve others and God. We seek to be served. We continually want to be served and not serve others. The things that we desire are not godly. But Jesus was wholly different to us, wholly different. Jesus's thoughts were always pure. Always pure. He never had one evil, sinful, lustful thought. His thoughts were pure. Jesus's will was pure. How he, the things he he chose to do, his will. He said, "I only do those things that please the Father." His will was pure. His emotions were always pure. Jesus always had compassion. He always had time for people. Whenever someone would come and say, please come and heal my daughter, um, and even at times the disciples would say, go away, that the master is busy, he would always rebuke them and he would go. He always had time. He always had love. He always had compassion. And even when he was angry, he exercised his anger righteously. His emotions were always pure and his desires were always pure. He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. That's our God. That's our Savior. He was pure. He was pure and He's not like us. We have to face that fact. This is our Savior. That's my God, that's my King hanging on that cross. He was pure. And he's not like us. He could go to heaven because that's his place. He was of that place. We cannot go where he went. That's not our place. So the truth is, until this awful realization of our sinfulness, of our total sinfulness in the sight of a holy God until this awful realization dawns on us. We cannot know the way of salvation. We cannot be saved unless we come to this realization that we are sinful and we need a savior. We are rightfully subject to God's wrath and we are of this fallen world and we are of our father, the devil. We're going to hell, we're not going to heaven. Where I go, Jesus said, you cannot come. So can I ask you, has there been a moment in your life where you have come to terms with your own sinfulness? Has there been a moment that you remember when you were brought to your knees by the realization of your guilt before our holy God, has there been that moment for you? Because if there hasn't, my fellow sinner, can I tell you, you're probably not saved. When I was 23, after dodging God for all my life, I came to a point where I finally had to admit that the good things that I tried to do to outweigh the bad things that I was doing were just not good enough. I came face to face with a holy, awesome God and I became convinced that I was going to hell. And my wife, Danielle, and I, on the same night when we were 23 years old, we bowed our knees together that night and we cried out to God to forgive us. And you know what? He did. He did. Because our God is gracious. And he's kind. And he's done everything to make a way. The sacrifices of God, said David, are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Bring your broken heart to Jesus Christ today. So this is the Bible's answer to who we are. That great question that we've set before us this morning. We are sinful and we are walking in darkness. But then why did Jesus come? Why did He come? Did He come just to reveal this this terrible news to us and show us a way of life that He lived that we cannot emulate? just to to then say well i'm going back to heaven, and you can't come with me. did he come just to torment us with the truth of our sinfulness, like a man traveling through <clears throat> Zimbabwe where where there's terrible poverty and 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 a child is 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 on the side of the road with with no clothes so thin that you can see the bones in its forearms and and its, and its elbows are swollen. Uh, in, in disproportionate, so thin, and its stomach is, is all swollen from the fever and disease of hunger, so hungry that it can hardly lift its, its head. And this man drives past in this tour bus, and he climbs out, and he explains to this child why you are so sick, why you have this fever, why you can hardly climb to your own feet. It's because you're hungry, you're starving, you're dying. And then he climbs back on the bus, and he, and he drives off. Is, is that what Jesus did? Verse 24, therefore, said Jesus, therefore, for this reason, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And there is that ray of hope that comes into this dark world. There the bus stops and the man gets off the bus and he comes back for for, for the child. He takes the child up in his arms and he gives the child food and medical treatment and he takes the child onto the bus and he adopts the child as his own. That's what he did for us. He came to fetch us. Came to give his life for us. And that is the way of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Hallelujah. Then they said to him, notice the the reaction of the Pharisees. Notice what they say now. Then they said to him, who are you? Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said, well, who are you? And here we see the stubbornness of man, the rebellion of man. They knew full well who he was. They knew who he was. The Jews had been expecting the Messiah for thousands of years. They had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen him open blind eyes, open deaf ears. They'd seen him raise the dead, and they'd heard him teaching. For three years, Jesus taught that he was the Messiah, Go and read Luke chapter 4. At one point, he he goes into a synagogue, and he asks for the scroll of Isaiah. He turns to what we would know as Isaiah 61, and he reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the anointed one, the Messiah, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set at liberty the captives, etc. They knew that was a prophecy of the Messiah. Jesus rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and the Bible says the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They knew who he was. So Jesus, not wanting to play their game, he says, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I've been telling you from the beginning who I am. You see, they wanted Jesus to say it explicitly, publicly. They wanted Jesus to say, I am the Messiah. Why? So that they could learn? No, so that they had something of which to accuse him. So that they could then drag him off for blasphemy and kill him. But Jesus didn't fall into their trap. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. I speak to the world those things that I heard from him. My friend, listen to me. If you reject the message of the gospel that you are hearing this morning, you are not rejecting my words. And you are not rejecting the words of the Lord Jesus, though that would be bad enough. You are rejecting the words of God Almighty Himself if you reject the gospel. They did not understand that He spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that nothing... I do I do nothing uh, of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. What is this lifting up of the Son of Man? He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, he called himself the Son of Man, when you lift me up, you'll know that I am the Messiah. At another point, Jesus uh, made, made a similar statement. He said, when I am lifted up. I will draw all men to myself. And the following verse in that portion of Scripture said, He said this to indicate what manner of death he would experience, in what manner he would die. This lifting up is Roman crucifixion. You see, when someone died as a Jew at the hands of the Jews for blasphemy, they were to be stoned with stones. But Jesus said, I will be lifted up for all the world to see. And when you see me lifted up on that cross, you will know that I am the Messiah. Because three days after you lift me up on that cross, I'm gonna walk out of that grave. You'll know that I'm the Messiah. And he who sent me, Is with me, Jesus said, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Why did Jesus go to the cross? You know, when when Peter was swinging his sword, cutting off people's ears in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to him, put your sword back. Don't you know that I could ask my Father and he would send 12 legions of angels in an instant to deliver me? 12 legions of angels. There's a story in the Old Testament. One angel killed 285,000 people in one night. One angel. He said that he will send 12 legions of angels to deliver me now. But he didn't. He didn't ask for the angels. He said, this is the hour of darkness, and I must go to that cross because I must die for the sins of the world. He said, I, only do, I, I I, always do those things that please the Father. You know why Jesus went to the cross? To please His Father. He did it out of obedience. The Bible says He learned obedience. God, it pleased God to crush His own Son so that the sins of the world and the sin of the world, the inherent sinfulness of our nature, could be laid upon Jesus. And the Bible says it pleased God to crush his own son so that your sin and your sins could be forgiven, so that justice could be done, so that you could go free while Jesus paid the price for you. It pleased God. That's the love of God. Now listen to this. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. So what do you say, sinner? Do you believe? And will you come to Jesus today? Perhaps there are those of you here who like people in the days of Noah, were eating and drinking and enjoying their life, When in an instant, the flood came and took them all away. They gave no thought to the the state of their souls. Perhaps you've never really thought about the state of your soul. You've never perhaps been confronted with the message of the gospel as you've been confronted this morning and challenged to bow your knees at the cross and beg for forgiveness. Will you come? Will you come to Jesus today? Perhaps I hear some of you say, Stephen, you don't know the things I've done. Well, you're right, I don't know what you've done. But I do know this, my friend, that 2,000 years ago, God already knew what you would do, and He laid it on His Son, and He beat His Son, and He crushed His Son, and He killed His Son for you. And I can tell you this this morning, my friend, the blood of Jesus Christ is strong enough for you. It's strong enough. It's strong enough to wipe you clean, to wash you clean. I don't care what you've done. Will you come? Will you come to Jesus today? Not tomorrow? You don't know if there will be a tomorrow for you. Don't harden your heart. Don't rebel. Today is the day of salvation. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you come and be saved? Went uh the band come up. Be nice to.